Well, you can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 2. We're going to finish the Johannine epistles in the new year, so we'll start 2 John in January. Uh, for our incarnation meditation this year, uh, we're going to do the prologue to John's gospel. And so I figured we'd have a bit of a priming of the pump from Genesis chapter 2 as we see how God dwells with, his, uh, with Adam in Eden. So we're going to look at verses 8 through 25 this morning, uh, but I will read the entire chapter to set the context. Genesis chapter 2, we'll begin reading at verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, before any plant of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth, and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four river heads. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hittikel. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. The fourth river is the, uh, the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. The Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the ribs which the Lord God had taken from man he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our great God, we are thankful for the blessing it is to dwell with you. We are thankful for your goodness that we see in creation, the goodness of the world that you formed and made uh, the blessing of the fact that you created us, you are the creator and we are the created, and that you put man in that blessed garden. You had man dwell with you and dwell with you with much richness, with much blessing uh, in a place of paradise where it is to dwell with you and find our happiness in you. 
And we're thankful that you made him and caused him and called him uh, to be that priest in that garden, to one to, who could till it, to one who would work in it, the one who would spread your glory to the ends of the earth. And we're thankful for the intimacy that man can have with you and did have with you in that garden of Eden. And we're thankful that marriage symbolizes this very thing. And yet we know that this blessed paradise, this blessed way to paradise, this blessed communion with you was severed because this man did not keep what he undo what he was supposed to do. He did not keep that covenant of works. And so we are thankful for the last Adam. We're thankful for he who is the one who uh, purchased for us a new creation. And we're thankful for the fact and the truth that we are a new creation in Christ Jesus. And even now we're thankful that we have your Holy Spirit. And so we ask and pray that you would dwell with us now. We know that we dwell with you. We know what we are in Christ, but we do long for that time where we shall dwell with you forever. We long for that consummation. We long for that access to the tree of life. Uh, we long for that time where we shall see that river flowing. And we're thankful that we experience in, it in part now. We have glimpses now, but we long for that fullness. We know that it is better than the beginning. It will be better than the beginning because it cannot be broken or taken away. And so we're thankful that our blessedness, we're thankful that our happiness is with you. Our happiness is worshiping you. Our happiness is looking upon Christ and seeing him as he is. And we do not see him now, yet we love him. And we know this is because of your doing, but we do long to see him as he is. So thank you that you help us and encourage us along the way. Help us to see the blessing it is to dwell with you. Help those who are not in Christ to see what it means if they do not believe on Christ. It shall be separation from the goodness of God forever, a loneliness forever. And we pray that they would look to Christ by faith and that in him, in the one who tabernacled among us, that they would find life and hope and joy and peace and blessedness in him because without him, there is no blessedness. So thank you for our Christ. Thank you for what he has done. And as we come and consider what you did at the creation, give us illumination by your spirit to better understand what your word says concerning these things. May today be a day of edification, a day of comfort, a day of reproof if needed. And we pray that today would be the great day of salvation. And we pray in all things you would be glorified. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, in order to have a glimpse of heaven, it's important for us to understand the beginning. As we consider where all of creation is going, where all the cosmos is going, it is important for us to understand what that goal is. What is man's chief aim? And really what awaits us is something that is better than the beginning, but it's still important for us to understand what God gave to Adam when he made him, what God did for Adam when he created him. This blessing in the garden, we see this unbroken communion with God. We see how God dwelt with his creation, dwelt with man in a special way. And the idea of dwelling is important for the entire scriptures because we see throughout scripture the way in which God dwells with man and culminating to the point where we see the one who is the word becoming flesh and tabernacling among his people. What we see in the Garden of Eden sets the stage for all of our communion with God. And it shouldn't surprise us that John 1.14 has a lot of rich allusions back to Old Testament times where God dwelt, where the cloud came upon the tabernacle, where the cloud comes upon the temple in 1 Kings, and even as we see God dwelling with man in Genesis chapter 2. And when you consider who God is, the creator of this world, when you consider man's severing of that blessed communion with him, we ought to marvel at the fact that this infinite God dwells with man 
and even dwells with sinful man. Because that's the problem that shall come about from Adam not doing what God had called him to do. Man sins and severs that special dwelling with God. What then does salvation bring for us? Well, it brings a dwelling with God, which is where our happiness and blessed life is. It is dwelling with God. And so we do see with Adam, when God made Adam, formed Adam, put him in the garden, it was a life of blessedness. We see God communing, God dwelling with man. And really what we see in the Garden of Eden is we do see that first temple where God dwells with man. And we see that Adam is that first priest. We see this undefiled dwelling, the possibility to be defiled, but nonetheless, when God made Adam, it was meant to be undefiled. And it was undefiled dwelling until Adam broke the covenant of work. So there's blessedness, there's goodness that we see in dwelling in Eden in Genesis chapter 2. And so we can ask the question, how did God dwell with man before the fall? Or better yet, how does man dwell with God before the fall? And we'll seek to answer this question under three headings this morning. How does God dwell with man before the fall? How did God dwell with man before the fall? Well, first of all, we'll see God's garden temple in verses 8 through 14. Secondly, we'll see God's garden priest in verses 15 through 17. And then lastly, we'll see God's garden marriage in verses 18 through 25. So God's garden temple... God's garden priest, and then lastly, we'll see God's garden marriage. So let's first look at God's garden temple, the blessedness of dwelling with God in verses 8 through 14. And notice we see the lushness, the, the beauty of paradise in verses 8 and 9. Now, it's important for us to understand that Genesis 1 is the broader general description of the creation of the world. Genesis chapter 2 then hones in on a specific day of that creation, namely the forming of man. I do take the position that God created the world in the space of six literal days. And so we perhaps hone in on day six here. How does God create man? What does he do when he creates man? And what does that look like when he forms man and puts him in the garden? So we see in verse 8, the Lord God plants a garden. We see in verse 7 how he forms man. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Man is the one created by the creator. Man is the one who is formed by the creator. He is made body, dust, and soul as God breathes the breath of life into him. And he makes him outside of the garden. But God also then, as the master gardener, uh, creates a garden. And so we see that in verses 4 through 6, we see that in verse 7, and we see that in verse 8. The Lord God, or verse 8, sorry, is where we see it. Verses 4 through 7 drive to verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. The location of this garden is near and next to Eden, an actual place that was upon the earth. And so God forms Adam, God creates Adam, and brings him and puts him into this garden to be the one who's going to till it and to keep it. But we'll get to that in verse 15. But we do see the lushness, we see the blessedness, this place of paradise. So God brings him to this garden, God places him there. And out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. God made man to enjoy blessings. God made man to be happy. But where is that happiness meant to be? 
It's not in riches. It's not in the things of this world, but is meant to be dwelling with God forever. What is man's chief aim? It is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So it's not wrong to say that our goal in life is to be happy. We have to ask ourselves, where does our happiness lie? Does it lie in things that are going to pass away? Or does it lie in the one who is eternal and has given us eternal things? Because we see it is a delight. It is a blessing. It is good for food. This is similar language that is used in Genesis 3, 6. When the woman looks upon the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we see this similar language. She saw the tree was good for food. She saw that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise. So she takes it and eats it. Blessedness is not a bad thing. Looking upon trees that God made is not a bad thing, except that one. God said, don't eat from that one tree. But she looks upon that one tree, seeks to find happiness away from God, seeks to walk in a way that goes away from God, which does not lead to happiness, but leads to sin and misery, which is what we do see in Genesis chapter 3. But when God made this world, when he created it and made the garden, it was meant to be a time of blessedness. And it was a time of blessedness. So it was good, made every tree, it was good and blessed. And then we see two specific trees that he makes. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life is that symbol. We could say the trees in many ways are sacraments, signs signifying something. And we see that this tree of life is a sign of life, a sign to Adam that everything he has is a gift given to him by God. God is the one who has life in himself, but God is the one who also creates life. And God holds out also eternal life, which is what we're going to see in verses 15 through 70. But it is this sign of life. Then we also see this symbol of law and order. How does man walk with God? How does man commune with God? Well, we see this in this tree of knowledge of good and evil. Adam knows what is good and what evil is. He is able to sin and able not to sin. He is able to do what is pleasing in God's sight, but also uh, he's unstable that he could fall. It's the state of innocency uh, is what theologians call it. He is called and he is uh, given this uh, natural law written on his heart to do what is pleasing in God's sight with the possibility of falling. But nonetheless, the tree signifies law and order, how man is meant to walk with God, to walk in goodness, not in evil. So paradise, the Garden of Eden, is meant to be a blessed thing. We see the lushness, we see the richness, the goodness of God to create the world and create this garden in Eden and give man this blessed richness to be a part of, to be put in this garden. So it's lush, but there's also life. And what gives it life is the river that flows out of Eden. And we see this in verse 10. The one source of the garden comes from what we could say is that most holy place. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four river heads. Notice Eden and the garden are not necessarily synonymous, but the garden is in Eden. The garden is next to that most holy place, and we see that we could say Eden is that most holy place. The adjoining garden is the holy place. Man cannot be God. Man is not God, but yet it was a blessing that man could be near God and could walk with God and dwell with God in that holy place 
in that garden. And then we see that there's further uh, levels to this as there's the outside of Eden. There's the outside of the garden. Man was made outside of it, placed in it. And we see these rivers spread forth throughout it. But also we see it's, uh, that, that there's uh, more than just the uh, Eden and the garden, but things outside of it. And Adam was meant to spread God's glory from Eden or from the garden out to the ends of the earth. But we see this river flows out of Eden. We see that God is the one who's going to water it. God is the one who brings life to the world in which he has created. And then we see various references, historical record, historical terms used to describe precious stones and uh, different rivers that are used there. The name of the first is Pishon, the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. It doesn't read like poetry, does it? It reads uh, uh, like narrative or like information that is given, holy information that is given. Bedellium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second is Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hidekel. It is the one which goes toward the east. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, there's a lot of temple connections. As I said, the Garden of Eden is that first temple. And we see a lot of connections later on in redemptive history. We see this especially with respect to the trees. If you turn with me for a second to 1 Kings chapter 6, as Solomon builds the temple, remember David wanted to, but David had too much blood on his hands, so God said your son would do that. Your son will build this temple. And so we see that God is the, Solomon is the one who does it, but we see the, how it is built in verses 14 and following. 1 Kings 6 verse 14, as it is made, as it is furnished. We see language used with respect to what it looks like. We see, and he built the temple and finished it. And he built the inside walls of the temple with cedar boards from the floor of the temple to the ceiling. He paneled the inside from the wood, uh, with wood. And he covered the floor of the temple with planks of cypress. Then he built the 20 uh, cubit room at the rear of the temple from floor to ceiling with cedar boards. He built it inside as the inner sanctuary, as the most holy place. And in front of it, the temple sanctuary was 40 cubits long. The inside of the cedar was, uh, temple was cedar, carved with ornamental buds and open flowers. All was cedar there, uh, and there was no stone to be seen. Later on, throughout the rest of that section as well, descriptive uh, using this uh, palm trees, figures of palm trees, verse 29 carved figures of cherubim, palm trees, open flowers, and the floor of the temple he overlaid with gold, both the inner and outer sanctuary. So we see this idea of trees are used later on, perhaps reflecting and alluding back to the Garden of Eden. And it's perhaps also the case that the tree of life, or the lampstand, is an allusion back to the tree of life. If you look in Exodus 25, when the lampstand is being formed, when the lampstand is being shaped, it's meant to be shaped like a tree, branches that are spread out. And theologians have highlighted that that lampstand was meant to shine as a light for the people. And if that lamp goes out, then the people would go out as well. If they did not have the life that is found with God, then they would be dead. Eden is a holy place. And the temple is royal, as Meredith Klein says. It is a sacred and religious place that we see in the garden, a place of special revelation where man heard the voice of God. And it's no surprise in John 1 that we see the one who is the life and the light who shines 
for his people, who brings revelation. We shouldn't miss some of that imagery as well. Jesus is the lampstand. Jesus is the light who shines in the darkness. So there's tree connections, the tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I mean, if they touched the ark where the law was placed, they were going to die. So there's a lot of symbolism, a lot of connection. There's a lot of themes that we see that connect. But what we see later on with the temples and the tabernacle with what we see in Genesis chapter 2. Onyx stone used in the tabernacle. Trees are important for the later temple that God makes in Israel. And certainly uh, they're important when we get to the final temple uh, in the book of Revelation. So trees are important, but also rivers. Notice it's the river goes out. And certainly there's images of river in Ezekiel 47, which I believe foreshadows and prophesies concerning the final consummation when man shall dwell with God forever. That's why I had Denny read Revelation 21, the river that flows out. If you can turn with me once again to Revelation 21. Where are healing, where are the springs of healing? Where is our source of life? Where does it come from? It comes from the one who is, who, who feeds us, who nourishes us, who refreshes us. Verse 1 of chapter 22. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Notice it proceeds from the lamb. It proceeds from the throne. God is the one who gives life. Who gives life? Who is the one who gives life to the world? It is God. It is that most holy place. It is with him where life lies. And even in the new heavens and new earth, we can't miss that, right? I mean, we have this imagery at the beginning, which God actually made, and then it ties in with what is said at the end. And what paradise is going to be like, what heaven is going to be like, it's going to be like Eden, but it's going to be better than Eden was. Because it cannot be severed, it cannot be taken away. And the thing I think we need to see from this first point here is the blessing it is to dwell with God. And again, where does our happiness lie? It lies with him being his creation. It's no surprise that the new covenant people are called what? 2 Corinthians 5. We are new creation. We're not of this old creation anymore. This old creation is going to pass away, but we are new creation in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, after man severs that dwelling with God, we see God is the one who restores that dwelling with him by way of the last Adam. And all who are in him, all who believed upon Christ, have blessedness and bliss and joy that is found in him. And that's what heaven is. It is dwelling with God. That's when we gather on the Lord's day, we are coming to heaven. It shouldn't surprise us that we see the end time temple, as many theologians have said, come down at Pentecost. The spirit coming down, the spirit coming down really to bring us up to heaven. And brethren, when we come and gather on the Lord's day, again, we are coming to heaven. Doesn't seem like it, doesn't feel like that, but we come by faith. We know that we are the heavenly people. We know that we are heavenly citizens. And where is the most blessed place to be in all the world? 
In my mind and the Bible's mind, the most blessed place to be in all the world is church. (laughs) The most blessed place to be in all the world is to come and gather and sing praises to God most high. Yes, God is with us throughout the week. God helps us as we are exiles in the land. We have the Holy Spirit as his people. But where do we primarily dwell with God? In his house. I mean, Paul calls his house the pillar and ground of truth. And so we get glimpses, we get foretastes of what that blessing is going to be like. And it's going to be a place where we sing praises to God, a place where we commune with God, a place where we find our joy with God in heaven. So it's been inaugurated by the work of Christ. We dwell with him because he first dwelled or he dwells with us. But we do have this hope of the consummation again. God's goodness in creation, which we see in Genesis 2, is a type for God's goodness in the new creation, which is what we see in Revelation 22. You see, that's why the the end is better than the beginning. The hope that we have is better than what happened in Genesis 2, because Adam severed it, Adam broke it, but according to the new covenant, it cannot be broken. And if you're in Christ, dear brethren, you dwell with God. If you're in Christ, dear brethren, God dwells with you. He walks with you. He guides you. He helps you. He's given you the Holy Spirit. And he's given us a place where we can dwell and gather as the saints of heaven. So it is a blessing to dwell with God. That is what we see in verses 8 through through 14 in God's garden temple. So let's move on then from God's garden temple to God's garden priest in verses 15 through 17. Notice when we dwell with God, it is on God's terms. But even God's terms are meant to be for our good. Our dwelling with God is not willy-nilly whatever we want it to be, but it's according to what he says. Now, we've spent some time before on the covenant of works with respect to God entering into a covenant with Adam and all his posterity. Adam functions as that federal head. And just because the term covenant is not here doesn't mean that it is not a covenant because later on in Hosea 6, we see that just as Israel transgresses, we see they transgress like Adam broke the covenant. So later revelation tells us very clearly that what we see in Genesis 2 verses 15 through 17 is a covenant. And so God makes man and God gives this priest a task, a task in the garden. He's meant to be a vice regent. He's meant to be an under gardener uh, with the true gardener who is God. And so we see in verse 17, this task he gives. He says, then the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. We see certainly that is, uh, we see the creation mandate in Genesis 1:28. Only man was made in the image of God by which man can dwell with God in this special way. Man was made with true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness to commune and walk with God. And so we see God makes man. He gives them that creation mandate. But then we see this specific mandate connected with this covenant. We see the general mandate in Genesis 1, be fruitful and multiply, spread God's glory to the ends of the earth. Adam was meant to be that priest king, to have dominion through the expansion, the garden expanding further, that God's glory might spread to the ends of the earth, that all of creation might dwell with God. Adam fails. What was Israel then supposed to do? Well, they were supposed to spread God's glory to the ends of the earth, expand that temple, and they don't do that very thing. And so who does it then? It is the last Adam. The last Adam who is the temple, 
the last Adam who brings about the new Jerusalem, uh, we see that as the Spirit comes out, it is describing him covering the entire earth, his glory going to the ends of the earth, God's presence going to the ends of the earth. Adam was supposed to do that by being fruitful and multiplying, but also specifically with what we see in verses 16 and 17. But we see Adam was meant to tend and keep it, to, to work in that garden. Notice paradise is not one of lounging. Notice paradise, there's still work, but it is a God-ordained, God-glorifying work. The same thing is true of rest, brethren. God has given us rest in this present world that is a type and foreshadow of the rest that awaits us in the new heavens and new earth. That's why the book of Hebrews talks about rest, especially Hebrews chapter 4. And one of the most blessed things that we see in Hebrews chapter 4, not just the fact that there still remains a Sabbath rest for God's people. The word changes, a Sabbath-keeping rest, because we all need rest. And what is rest? Rest is not idleness, is it? Rest, certainly naps are fine, but what is rest? Worshiping God. It is a redirected rest. It is a redirected thing, namely a holy rest. And I, and I would uh, pause it and I would say to you that you, have, you do not rest until you worship. We do not rest until we worship the one God. What's heaven going to be like, brethren? Singing praises to God and worshiping him and we'll find our greatest rest in him. But it does say, after he says in Hebrews, uh, in Hebrews 4, it does say, there remains therefore a rest. The word changes. The only time... Uh, that this specific word is used in this section. All the other words for rest are different. There still remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Notice verse 10. For he, singular, he has entered his rest, Christ has himself ceased from his work as God did from his. The Lord Jesus worked and now he rests and thankfully, we rest in him. I believe that Christ is our rest, but there still remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God as it points and looks ahead to that time we shall rest with God forever. So there's holy work, God-ordained work. Here's what Adam was supposed to do all the way back in Genesis 2. You can turn back there. And then we also see that there's God-ordained rest as well. So keep it, till it. That was what Adam was supposed to do. Then we also see his probation in verses 16 and 17. This is where we see that covenant of works, specifically the stipulations. It's conditional. Adam, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But God does also say, you can eat from every other tree. Every other tree. You can enjoy it. Eat as much as you want. It'll be fine. But don't eat from this one tree. Of every tree of the garden... You may freely, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. That's the stipulation. So the covenant parties are God and Adam and all of his posterity, all man in Adam. We know this from Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. And we see the stipulation, don't eat from this one tree. And then we see the sanction or the threat or the blessing or the curse. And the curse will be death. If you eat from this tree, you're going to die. Don't eat from this tree, otherwise you're going to die. You're going to bring death, not just physical death, but spiritual death into the world as well. So this, this law of not eating from the tree is what we call a positive law. It was tied specifically to this covenant. You can still eat fruit. It's perfectly fine. But this one tree you cannot eat from. Adam, that one thing. I mean, that's all he had to do, right? Spread God's glory. He could do it. He was made in the image of God. But don't eat from that one tree. 
And we see that's exactly what he does. So death is threatened, but the implication is life. And the implication seems to be eternal life. What did Adam fall short of? What did all of mankind fall short of, according to Romans chapter 3? Eternal life. Blessed life with God forever. Adam severed this initial creative life, but Adam also didn't earn everlasting life. Again, you see the connections, right? The first and the last Adam, what the first Adam, the last Adam does that the first Adam could not do. The last Adam obeys. The last Adam brings eternal life. The first Adam doesn't. The last Adam brings dwelling with God forever. See how much better the end is in the beginning? See how much better Christ is than Adam? Even Adam is a type of Christ pointing ahead to him. All of creation is meant to go to this goal of eternal life, and that eternal life is one where we dwell with God. That is man's purpose, to dwell with God and enjoy him forever. The problem is that has been severed. And notice that the goal, we could say eschatology, if I were to define eschatology, you know what it is? It's the goal of all things. It is the last things, but what are the last things? It is the goal of where we're headed. And what is that, what is that then? It is dwelling with God. Notice the goal precedes salvation, right? The goal precedes the need for salvation. Dwelling with God, Adam severs it, so then we need what? Salvation to what? Dwell with God, to enjoy him and glorify him. And we cannot do that unless we are in Christ Jesus. That was man's purpose, to enjoy God, glorify him for eternity in eternal communion with him. But Adam breaks that. The last Adam brings that. And so this is how man was supposed to walk with God. This is a time when man was supposed to walk in a way that is pleasing to God, how man was supposed to be with God. And again, Adam was able to sin and able not to sin. He, his will was not tainted with sin. He freely directed, and when we, God made Adam, it wasn't a neutral will. It was a will to glorify God. But what does he do? He destroys, he, he severs that. He chooses that which was evil. He, is, he brings sin and misery into this world. But we'll get to that more in Genesis 3. But it's important to highlight some temple connections. Again, we see communing with God. The unique presence of God in the garden. And we certainly see that Eden is a mountain. We see this in Exodus chapter 28, and we certainly see that mountains in Scripture are important. That's why we have Mount Zion and Mount Sinai, where God dwells with his people. I always say this, and I'm going to say it again. It doesn't mean when you go to a mountain, God is going to specially dwell with you at that time. If you go up Cyprus, Great, walk up Cyprus, enjoy the creation, that's fine. But that's not a special place of God's revealing. We've come to Zion. We're in Zion right now. We're here at the mountain of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the mountains seem to indicate, and the river flows down, right? I mean, that's the implication. The rivers flow out. The place of God's unique presence and how God or man got to dwell with him in that holy place. And as man dwells with him, as man walks with him, as God walks with man, he must do so in a way that is pleasing to God. And what's interesting is the God walking language is used in Genesis 3.8. I know that's when he comes to judge Adam, but we see him walking in the garden. What, is, what does God do with Israel according to Leviticus 26? He might walk with them. What does Jesus do when he takes on a human nature? He walks with us. 
And so this dwelling, this communion, how man communes with God, the unique place of God's presence is in the garden, is with man in this way and in this place according to his terms. Well, even the language of the tilling and keeping is used in Numbers 3 to describe what the priests would do as they keep the temple there. There's all this temple connections to highlight for us, once again, that what we see in Genesis 2 is the first temple, the temple in Eden. And as we've said, Adam was supposed to spread God's glory. The outside land need to be subdued. And Adam was supposed to spread it to the ends of the earth. Adam was supposed to do this, and Israel was supposed to do this. But as we see, it is the servant who does it. Remember the Lord says to the servant in Isaiah 49, Israel's not enough for you. I'm going to give you the Gentiles as well. I'm going to give you the nations as well. The whole, the Israel's not enough. The world shall be yours. And the last Adam does that by keeping the law in its perfection and dying as that perfect sacrifice. That is the task that is given to Adam. And even though he broke it, there are still some things we can take from what we see here. Namely, if we're in Christ, we walk with God. If you're not in Christ, you do not walk with God. The implication is that if you do not follow this conduct that we see here, you cannot be in paradise. And I know for a fact you cannot do what God says. I know for a fact that you cannot keep the law. I know for a fact that you would have done the same thing that Adam did by eating from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said to Adam, if you eat from it, death... And you would have eaten from it, and you still sin in your own ways, in your own sins. And so what does sin deserve? It deserves death. And what is death? It is separation from the favorable presence of God forever. The only way to be, uh, have communion with God, the only way to have your sins forgiven, is in Jesus Christ. Believe upon him, look to him, because without him, you are under the wrath and condemnation of God, and shall die and be lonely forever. But there is one you can find hope, there is one you can find peace, there is one you can find life, and that is in that last Adam, because those who are in Christ, we are the new creation. We saw that in 2 Corinthians 5, but even all the, the application in the New Testament letters, it's all about how we are the new creation and how we live as that new creation people. Think of Ephesians as a whole, the whole book. Ephesians 1 through 3, how are the new creation? How it happens? What does it mean that we are now the new creation? Uh, what is, uh, how does the new creation been purchased for us? Ephesians 4 through 6, how we live as the new creation people. Well, Ephesians 5, it says we what? We walk. We walk in love. That is our pleasing sacrifice to God. And he goes on to talk about various relationships, husbands, wives, uh, parents, children, masters, slaves. That is how we walk with God. Even when you think about the Old Testament and the Old Covenant people, Israel had to approach unto God by way of sacrifice. And after Adam brought sin into this world, we have to approach God by way of sacrifice. Thankfully, we have that once for all sacrifice. But even when in Leviticus, we see the sacrifices, but then we see the holiness codes and the purity rituals, how man then walks with God. And so that's what the letters teach us, how we walk with God. We walk according to his ways. According to 2 John 6, we see we walk according to his commandments. And the blessed thing is, brethren, it's because we commune with God. The God of heaven and earth communes with you and I if you believed upon him. 
And if he communes with you and I, shouldn't we walk in ways that are pleasing unto him by the Spirit? Not perfectly, but by the Holy Spirit and in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, the hope is, and the blessedness is, in the consummation, in the full new heavens and new earth, we see this in Revelation 22, who are the ones who inhabit the city? And who are the ones who are excluded from the city? The righteous shall inherit the kingdom of God. And the righteous shall inherit it in the Lord Jesus Christ, but the unrighteous shall remain out of that city. So we walk with God. We walk with the Lord according to his ways. That is a blessing because of what Christ has done. So that's God's garden priest. Let's then look thirdly and finally at God's garden marriage in verses 18 through 25. We see the intimacy, the blessedness of communing with God to know him. And so Adam does need a helper, verses 18 through 20. Not good for man to be alone. God says that. God is gracious to us and good. The Lord God said it's not good for man that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And so we see that man begins his task as this vice regent to, to till, to keep, but also to, to name. Out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. What Ad, what Adam, uh, whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. So he's doing his task. He's starting his task. We see his dominion over these animals now. But there was no suitable helper. There was not found a helper comparable to him. So what does God do? God in his goodness creates one. And we see the sanctity of marriage. We know that man and woman are created in the image of God, Genesis 1, 27. But we see that God then forms the woman out of the rib of man, verse 21. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made, he formed into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Not only does he create her, but he brings her to him. And so we see he brings her in this first marriage. We see that, that God is bringing Adam, uh, bringing Adam a wife in this first temple wedding to further highlight the intimacy that God and man can have to highlight the blessedness of what marriage is, the, the holy and ideal state of what it is, this creation ordinance. And he says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. There's this intimacy. There is this union that happens in marriage. They shall become one flesh. And it shouldn't be lost on us that Paul applies this to marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. Now, I do believe marriage is a creation gift. I do believe that I would marry two unbelievers, and I would marry two believers, but I would not marry a believer and an unbeliever. But I do believe unbelievers can enjoy this as well. They don't understand the full significance of it. Uh, but nonetheless, it is a blessed gift. But if one is not in Christ, one does not know Christ, they don't see the full significance of what this highlights. And it highlights that communion with God. I mean, there's a reason that Christ, uh, there's Christ is called the bridegroom, as we saw in Revelation 22:17, And there's a reason that the church is called the bride. Christ loves his bride. Christ loves her. He died for her. And we see this union with 
her. This union with her, the point is of Christ is so that his church dwells with God forever, that we dwell with God in communion forever. Marriage is this microcosm that signifies the intimacy between Christ and his church, between God and man. And it should be lost upon us that there is the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation chapter 19. That's another reason we're not going to be, there's not going to be giving and receiving in marriage because marriage points to something. It looks ahead to something. It looks to that union between Christ and his church. But even here, God is good. We see the blessedness, the beauty of it, uh, the blissness of it. Man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. A lot of instruction here about what marriage is. Certainly we see, you know, a helper comparable to him doesn't mean a woman is subhuman. Just we see her task. Her task is to help man. Her task is to help her husband do what he is supposed to do. We see the blessedness of the marriage bed here that has been majorly defiled because of what man has done, but it was God made it. God created it. God gave man those desires before creation. So it's a good thing, but it's meant to be used in a specific area. It was a blessed thing. They were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. And the wife is also needed for expansion as well. I mean, there's three purposes for marriage that we really do all see here. Preventing uncleanness. We see um, companionship and also for expansion. So this, again, this is the ideal state. This is what it's meant to look like. We know that what happens with Adam, he destroys all that. He brings sin and misery into the world. We see wonderful people unable to have children. We see the marriage bed defiled. We see people that are lonely. It's a very sad thing, especially when you see it in light of God's goodness that we see in Genesis chapter 2. We do see this intimacy this union, this blessedness, communing together, this love uh, that we see in God's garden marriage. And again, the inauguration in Christ Jesus where the bride, the church is the bride now, Ephesians 5, and there's this consummation that one day the bride shall be presented what? Glorious. She shall be presented without spot, and all the church is considered the bride. And Christ loves her specifically. He dies for her specifically that we might have communion and union with him forever and a blissful life with him forever. It's a lot of good things. God is good with what he gave to Adam, but we know that Adam breaks that. And we see that in Genesis 3, the entrance of sin, the reversal of everything. They disobey God's commands, verses 1 through 7. We see this serpent, so Adam was supposed to be the head, then the woman helps him, and then they're supposed to be over the animals. But the reversal happens. The snake comes, and then he talks to the woman, and then the woman sins, but Adam's right there. So we see this usurping of God's order in the world. So they disobey. You shall be like gods. A God or gods, it could read. You shall be like the one who created the world. But we know that that is too good to be true. So they eat it, they take it, and we see the reversal, uh, reversal, verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed leaves together and made themselves covering. So they bring sin into the world. And we see God's judgment in verses 8 through 20. He's not just going for a stroll in the garden here in the cool of the day. It has judgment language, the whirlwind. God comes in the whirlwind later on in the prophets as he brings judgment upon 
uh, Israel. And so we see this judgment language. He's coming to execute his judgment based upon their severing of the law and severing of the, uh, the covenant of works. So he comes, the presence of the Lord God among the trees. They tried to hide, and we see a lot of blaming happen. Adam blames his wife. The wife blames the serpent. So God does what he says. He brings the curse. He brings the curse upon them. And we see that life, they're going to be driven from the garden. They're going to be driven from paradise, driven from the tree of life. They're going to be taken out of that blessed, blissful presence with God. They're going to be driven from it. Adam's going to work, but it's going to be hard. Uh, the wife is going to have children, but it's going to be very painful. Sin and misery comes into this world. He failed to keep it. Adam failed to guard it. Adam failed to keep the presence and the blessed presence with God. He should have stepped on the head of that serpent. He should have crushed its head immediately, should have grabbed it and snapped its neck, but he did not do that thing. And thankfully, there is Genesis 3.15. In the midst of all the cursing, there is this blessed joy to the world. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And we see God does by way of the gospel bring that restoration of man communing with God, culminating or coming to a climax in the incarnation of our Lord, the word becoming flesh and tabernacling among us that we then might be able to dwell with God because it is better than the beginning because we have a greater Adam. And I'll close with the second stanza of hymn 168. Hark the herald angels sing, but this is the second stanza. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we are thankful for Jesus, who is our Emmanuel. We are thankful that our blessed life comes from knowing you, comes from communing with you, comes from being united to you. And we know that we would have none of these things if it was not for your great salvation in the Son. Thank you that you came down, O oh Son. Thank you that you took on a human nature. Thank you that you are fully God and fully man in that one person. And we are thankful that you have all the essential properties and common infirmities that we deal with, yet you are without sin. We're thankful for your working. Thank you that you are the last Adam. You did what that first Adam could not do. We know that sin and misery is in this world. We know that we still deal with the remaining corruption in our own hearts. We still see sin and misery all around us. And as we see it, and as we consider it, and as we come and consider what your word says and consider where everything is going, may we long for heaven. May we appreciate uh, the new heavens and new earth. May we appreciate what we are in Christ and what we have in Christ and uh, the blessedness it is to gather as your saints, even as we see that day approaching. Where We pray, O oh Lord, that you would please forgive us for not uh, honoring you as we ought, not loving you as we should, not worshiping you as we ought, we know that the greatest place of rest and bliss is in worship with you. And so we're thankful for this one day in seven that is given as a market day of the soul. We pray that you would nourish your people, that you would give us the strength and encouragement we need and help us to know that you are with us. You walk with us. You walk with us now. 
by the Holy Spirit. And so give us that strength as we are pilgrims along the way, as we are making our way to that celestial city. And we long for that time when we shall see Christ as he is. So help us along the way. Help us to know the joy of dwelling with you. Help us to know how we walk with you and help us to know uh, the truth of the intimacy that we have with you as well. Thank you that you know us, we know you. Thank you that you walk with us and we walk with you. And thank you for the blessed life we shall have forever, world without end. So thank you for all these things. We pray that you be honored and glorified in all things. We pray these things in the name of Christ.